This is Creative to Creative. Together, we deep dive into the creative and production processes of leading creatives, finding out what makes them tick, how they do what they do, and the challenges along the way. This is Creative to Creative, powered by Motion by Design. Today on Creative to Creative, we interview Matt Remfrey, owner and creative director of Parallax. Matt founded Parallax back in 2001 and has been at the helm ever since. It's fair to say a lot has changed in that time, including the length of his hair. When he's not playing director in the studio, you'll usually find Matt playing his Gibson on stage or training for a marathon. Matt Remfrey, welcome to Creative to Creative. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Um, Thank you. Tell us a little bit about who you are and the fantastic stuff you do at Parallax. Um, so I'm um, the founder of Parallax Design. We've been running for just over 20 years now. Parallax started as a as a, you know, a generalist branding studio, graphic design studio. That's what I studied. And um, over the the, tw- the course of 20 years, we've probably built a bit of a niche in, in wine and drinks, in branding and marketing for wine and drinks um, businesses. I mean, that's... Most designers in South Australia will have a lot of wine on their books, just given the fact that there's so much wine that's produced in South Australia. So, um, but it's just one of those things that built up, built up more and more to the point where it probably occupies about eighty percent of our work these days. And we work with everyone from sort of small, independent, family-owned wineries right up to sort of large corporates, um, you know, across Australia and a little bit in New Zealand. Um, we're a team of six, team of designers, writers, strategists, and, and and digital leads. Yeah, that's pretty much in a short, sharp paragraph what we do. So um, do you love alcohol? Do you love wine? Is is that part of maybe why you've ended up where you're at with the niche? Uh, a couple of things. I mean, yes, I mean, I, I do have a interest in wine. I do. I, I, I enjoy drinking. I enjoy the, the, the history of wine. I enjoy the way it's made. You know, on the whole, the people that work in the wine industry and the drinks industry, um, particularly wine, you know, small independent wineries, you know, you you couldn't come across really a better bunch of people that work in those things. They're, you know, really generous with their time, really generous with what they do, really usually really passionate about what they do as well, um, sort of real craftspeople. So from that point of view, from the people that we work with to an interest in the product um, is probably sort of helped us sort of move into that. And it's also an opportunity as well. I mean, there is, you know, almost 70% of Australia's wine comes out of South Australia. So, you know, you've got that broad, um, uh, you know, sort of cross-section of industry from, as I said, you know, your small independents right through to your big corporates and stuff like that and all doing different things within that industry. So, yeah, from an opportunity-wise, I think everyone in in the studio, you know, enjoys a drink, enjoys working in that industry. So, you know, sort of it's a win-win from that situation. Is alcohol changing over the time you've you've been in the industry? Um, yeah, well, there's always. I mean, there's a big low and no alcohol movement at the moment. Um, interesting in when you look at the data with that, it's not necessarily turning people that would normally drink alcohol into not drinking alcohol. Sometimes there's a bit of a thing of like people drink less, but they'll drink better. But it's also getting people, potentially people that weren't drinking alcohol, and anyway into that. You know, I, I don't want to drink a soft drink. Um, I want to drink something that's perhaps a little bit more sort of grown up or the, the flavour profile is a little bit more um, sort of interesting and complex in drinking a soda water. So there's definitely that change. There's changes. I mean, there's always trends in the wine industry. There's trends from sort of going from you know, big, bold reds to much lighter, more savoury, lower in alcohol wines. Um, 
that's a trend that's been going for a while and it's not going to stop. Then the sort of rise of craft spirits over the last 10 years has been pretty phenomenal as well. Especially here in South Australia. I feel like everyone and their dog owns a gin distillery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Vodka gin, and tequila are the next things, right? Well, yeah, I mean, anything. I mean, the, the, th- the good thing about gin is you can make and sell it the next day. So, you know, you see a lot of that. It's an easy way to get into the market. You know, you buy your, your base spirit, you, then you distill it with your flavourings and bang, you've got a gin that's ready to go. So vodka's similar. It'd be interesting to see if tequila's the next because, you know, you do have to have Argave um, sort of base spirit mm-hmm. um, rather than just base spirit that you can buy in. But then also we've been doing a lot of work with whiskey producers as well. Um, and in that instance, you know, that's something that, you know, you've got to make your, your what they call their juice, put in a barrel for, you know, eight to ten years before you can sell it. Um, but then you find that all of those whiskey producers have a gin because that's the cash flow. They can make that and sell it immediately. Yeah, right. Interesting. So you mentioned that potentially, you know, as people are maybe choosing to drink less, they're drinking better. Mm -hmm. Where does brand play in that? And how important do you see brand being when, you know, people are choosing potentially a more premium product but Mm -hmm. doing less of it? Yep. Um, so I, I would say then, I mean, brand and positioning are going to be vital in that, particularly if you've got a, um, you know, a new um, wine to bring into a, you know, a higher price category, then, you know, positioning, how do you position that in that market uh, is going to be vital for people to, to, to see it, to lend it credibility to, you know, for someone to say, yeah, I'm going to spend $100 on this bottle of wine rather than you know, $20. So, yeah, it's vital in, in, in that. It's also... When people are buying better, they will, to a certain extent, start to gravitate towards brands that they know. Then obviously the years that you spent in in building that brand and building that position in the market is going to start to play off when people are looking at, okay, what am I going to spend my money on? I mean, it's equally important at lower end and entry air level because you've probably got more competition down there um, and it's harder to stand out at that point. I'd like to think you're probably the best or one of the best branding agencies in Adelaide. Thank you. What goes into making a brand? What's important? What's the process uh, when someone comes to you and says, I, I need a brand or a logo or... Yeah, so um, let's take it from a, um, say, a wine um, brand point of view. The first thing we've got to do is basically get inside the head of the, of the, of the business or the business owner. We've got to understand, you know, what they're doing, what they believe is unique about what they're doing, um, you know, who they're up against, who their competition is, what they're doing. So you can either say, well, we need to sail closely to this or we need to find our own niche within that. That's vitally important. With something like wine, the real gatekeeper is not necessarily the consumer. It might be the distributors. It might be, um, you know, uh, retail um, outlet owners, um, you know, the trade in general. So we will spend a lot of time talking to them, particularly if it's a if it's an existing brand that's going through an evolution, then you know really to try to get the distributors on board and the trade on board to find out okay what's working, what's not working, you know where do they see because they're real front line, you know where do they see the opportunities, um, how can this brand fit into their portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. So getting them in is really important. So we spend a lot of time talking to them. Um, and then a lot of time it's getting to know the, com- the the business, getting to know the business owners, what their passions are, what gets them up in the morning. Uh, really important to set uh, the idea of what success looks like to them. So where do they want to be in five years? What are their plans? Um, you know, how can we help them get there? So 
the first part of that process, which then turns into the, the whole strategy or the plan from what's going to roll out next, to my mind is probably the most important part. So if we don't have those foundations right, then you know it's, it's very hard then to build anything on on top of that. So we'll spend a lot of time that that will come out to uh, we'll be providing a, a writing a, a brief uh, for the project back to the back to the client, and that's the first proof point of okay, is everyone agreeing with the information we've got, the insights we've had, and also then the direction that we should be taking. So like a reverse brief. So yeah. you're coming back being like, this is what the market needs or wants. Yep. This is what we want to make for you. Here's the little position that your brand should slot into. And yeah. what do you think about this? Yeah, exactly. So the brief that we'll get from a client will normally be like a specification brief. Like I've got X amount of wine to sell. And this is the varieties I've got. And this is the price point. Um, and these potentially are the channels that I want to go into. Our brief coming back will be much more like breaking that brand down to as if it was a person. So how does it talk? How does it act? How does it dress? Who does it associate with? How does it behave? And then they're also picking in sort of real market data. So what does your customer want? So it's not only the end, end customer, but what does your, you know, your trade customers want? You know, what are they looking for and how could we develop something that can fill that need? So it becomes there's definitely the, the, the client is in there, but it also is taking things um, and leads from what the customer wants or what's what the market, where, where's the gap in the market that you could possibly fill and take advantage of. So would you follow that same process for any brand? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, that whole thing of like getting to know the, the client, getting to know the market, uh, getting to know what your competition is doing. Um, stakeholder engagement. So that's in a wine industry, that's going to be your distributors. But, um, you know, stakeholders, anyone that can make or break you as a stakeholder. So whether it be uh, an architectural firm or accounting firm or, um, you know, region brand, branding or place branding, then sort of making sure that we've, we're getting all of the information that we need to um, sort of make the decisions as we go through. I'm interested to know like what happens if a person doesn't know who their audience is or their potential audience. So they've got maybe they're at the idea stage or maybe they're very early on in a in a brand or a business and they don't necessarily know where it might sit in the market or yep. or who it's for. Is mm-hmm. is that stuff that you work out with them first before yep. a brand? Yeah, definitely. I mean I mean, the typical thing of you know, if you ask uh, wine business where do they want to sell their wine, it was like, well, you know, anyone over the age of 18 with a pulse. And it's like, well, you know, that's pretty broad. So we will work with them and say, well, let's have a look at what you're producing and how you're producing it and, and pricing levels and, and, and really try to sort of zone in on a particular sort of customer that they will be sort of looking to target. Um, and we see that with, with businesses across, you know, they may have a portfolio at different price points. Each of those price points would align to a different sort of uh, customer different sort of consumer so again we're trying to get really tight on that yes it's it's it's, it's hopeless to sort of say it's everybody you, you know if you if you're trying to appeal to everybody then at the end of the day you don't appeal to anybody so um you know we've, we've really got to be tight and and get them to really start thinking deeply about who it is that they're trying to appeal to so obviously the the alcohol industry has gone through quite a few changes uh in the last few years i've got the you know the china Mm-hmm. sort of breakdown you've got COVID where people can't go to cellar doors which is part of that whole experience yeah. how have you adapted as a brand and how have you adapted your clients brands to sort of suit the the adaption in the in the 
in the market? Yeah, well, I'll start with the COVID because, yes, there was a, a disruption in getting to cellar doors and things like that, but the alcohol consumption during that time went up because everyone was at home, you know, <laughs> basically. Uh, and you could still buy alcohol. So, you know, the big retailers like, you know, Dan Murphy's, though, um, you know, absolutely, you know, making you know, money hand of a fist during that period. One of the things was during that time, if you could get into a store, like people weren't hanging around and looking and experimenting. So it was like, okay, if you've done the hard yards in the in the leading up to this and you've actually got a pretty solid brand and there's credibility behind it, then that's what's going to sort of get pulled off the, off the shelf. Um, but then we found um, with all of our clients just saying, okay, well, you've got to work out how to, how to be selling this direct. And most of our clients, their D2C channels were pretty underdeveloped and it wasn't an area that we'd really worked very much in either. So we sort of had to skill ourselves up and then, and then really sort of work out, okay, how do we start marketing online? How do we start selling direct? How do we start really bolstering um, subscriptions and memberships? How do we start reading that data? How do we start segmenting those customers? And then that led us to sort of basically sort of setting up a, a digital arm uh, for, for, to service that. So that's, that was that side. Um, COVID really wasn't, at the end of the day, it wasn't a, it didn't, you know, the sky didn't fall in. Like if you look at what happened, everyone had more cash than they knew what to do with. Everyone was sitting around at home. So it, it sort of, it, it worked. The, the bigger one that's been really disruptive has been the China um, tariff on wines. So, you know, you had a um, an export country worth what 1.6 billion dollars a year so we're now three years into that so cumulatively you know five and a half billion dollars less in exports you know you had uh, leading up to that the tariffs going on you know huge amount of investment in new vineyards uh, and new production to service that market which all of a sudden now is is you know I mean, I mean there's horror stories out there about vineyards just you know, vineyard owners just having nowhere to sell their grapes, not even bothering to to pick this year. Got uh, you know facilities full of last year's wine, so there's nowhere to put this year's wine. And you know, part of that is is you know how come the the industry goes so full on into one market? Um, I think there's lots of lessons to be learned, but the fact is that that market was paying two to three times what any other market was for the same product. So yeah. you know, it doesn't you know it's understandable why. Um, people were building up for that. But we've definitely seen uh, an impact in, in in that. And I think three years in now, it's probably really starting to bite the industry. The industry is finding new markets. You listen to the big players and they're saying they've set their business up that it'll continue on if China never comes back. And then you sort of look at reports about the consumption of wine in China. It's actually been dropping anyway over that time. But interestingly, it's not dropping from the top end. It's dropping from the bulk end. So there's still opportunity. There's still players in there from Australia. They're priced high enough and their brands are such that they'll get around that that, that tariff. Mm. But it's definitely having an effect across the industry, that's for sure. It's a bit weird that an industry as a whole have only just moved yep. online, right? Like it's very late in the day for an industry to realise like, oh, we need a shop online. Yep. Do you think it's here to stay? I mean, COVID's pretty much over now right mm-hmm. and people are, are going out and wanting to go to events they're going to want to go to cellar doors they're all yep. at the moment they're saving for holidays or going on holidays and spending all their money on holidays mm-hmm. i think the cellar door experience is probably quite, going to be quite high now or, or into the near future just people trying to get out of the house do yep. you think the 
the shop side's probably going to get left behind again or do you think that now they've got it, it's, you know, like why didn't we have this for years? Yeah, I think that second. I think now that they've got it and I'm not – I mean the industry as a whole is still probably not doing it terribly well. But, and, and, there, and there was, I think, early on this idea that if I can sell it direct – you know, I'm not paying commission on distribution. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have to have someone manning Salador, all of those sort of things, which, which I think most of the, the ones that are doing it correctly realise that, no, they've actually got to really invest in in online properly um, to actually get the benefits out of it. And I think those ones are seeing the benefits and um, and it will continue on. I mean, Salador visitation only helps online because the easiest way to get someone to sign up into your subscription or into your club is them being in Celador, having an amazing experience, signing up on the spot, you know, and things like, you know, you get back home and there's an email there with what you tasted and, you know, notes on that and what to do with it and all those sorts of things. So the experience of an online thing is is much more than, okay, I'm going to pay 200 bucks a quarter and get a case of wine. It's 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 invitations to you know, special events and dinners, you know, one-on-ones with winemakers. Um, it's, it's much more about building that community, which does – mean that there's there's an investment beyond just putting up a website so walking through your you know your bottle shop how does one get a label and a brand to stick out from the rest i mean there's obviously a bunch that look the same there's a couple that look completely different Mm -hmm. is there any sort of secret recipe that you go through either to stick out or to blend in or a bit of a and a bit of b yeah so it's one it's understanding a client and, and trying to work out a point of difference of what they're doing, uh, which gets increasingly hard when you've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of competitors in a lineup. But that's a really important thing to do is to make sure that you know what you're doing and 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 you know how you what you're doing differently and and what you can offer differently to everybody else. And then depending on channel, you know, I would say that one of the hardest places to stand out would be at that twenty dollar bottle in supermarket retail. So, you know, I would say if you go into Dan Murphy's, it's twenty bucks. And you want to get a Shiraz, so you've, you've got hundreds of, of options to choose from there. As a consumer, what are you, what are you looking for? It's, now, a, it's a hit or a miss, isn't it? Really? <laughs> well, it might be that you're looking for brand that you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it also depends on, you know, what are you, when are you buying the wine? So is it for like a Wednesday night with pasta? Is it you're going over to someone's place for dinner? You know, it's, it's, it's those sorts of things come into it as well. So, again, it's, it's trying to understand the, the consumer and where they're, going to consume the wine and what they're buying it for at that lower end you, you've got to be looking to stand out you've got to be looking at what everyone else is doing and try to go the other way and one thing even though there are hundreds of choices you know you can walk into a store and you can see that 80 percent of the labels all pretty much look the same you know so you can disregard that and, and try to find your own thing as you get higher up it's interesting because if you're wanting to put a, a high price uh, wine into the market and you haven't done it before then it the strategy may be to look at okay well what does high price wine look like and try to look like the rest of the gang so you get a bit of credibility that fake, way fake it till you make it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it because you know you know if if you're going to spend 50 60 100 on a bottle of wine and you're taking it somewhere part of that whether you're conscious or not is you want other people to go oh wow dom's bought a pretty expensive wine <laughs> To the to the table, yeah. And I don't know what it is, but it looks expensive, yeah. Um, so there's 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 part of that, and then and then you can then go the other way if you in that and you've already got credibility for that wine, then it gives you the opportunity to, to disregard those norms and say, well, I'm going to rub against the category cues and do something completely different. And that's in retail, but then if you look at 
something like uh, on-premise, which is restaurants and bars and bistros and those sorts of things, then like name and story become more important than sometimes in the packaging because you're not looking at a label to choose. You're you're reading it off a menu or you're being uh, – the sommelier has been, is telling you what to buy or what's going to go with that. So then the the marketing of that, again, was, you know, it comes back to that gate, uh, the gatekeeper, which in that case might be a sommelier in a restaurant or um, – you know, the, the, the owner of an independent bottle store, you know, your marketing starts with them to explain what's different about your wine. So if they are recommending you, they're recommending you, they're getting the story right and all that. But then the name, the naming of it becomes really important to that because that's that's what's going to sort of grab you off a wine list and, and get, get you intrigued as to what that wine's all about. Mm. This might be a loaded question, but it's one that everyone always asks, right, is how much does a brand cost and would you charge the same for your startup versus your international multinational companies? So the second part is no, um, we wouldn't charge the same for a startup to a multinational. And, and one of the reasons for that is th- there's a thing that sort of early on um, sort of I realised where you, you price the client rather than the job. So the value of getting a brand right to a small startup is very different to the value of a multinational with shareholders and everything else. So there's, you know, there's there's that in consideration. Just in terms of if you're working for a very large company, the process and the stakeholders, there's more stakeholders, there's more people to talk to, there's more people, there's more levels of approval. The project is going to be more complex and longer. So from a just a pure time point of view, it's going to be that way. You're probably not dealing with the MD. You'd be dealing with a brand manager or a marketing manager. Working with a small independent, you know, you're dealing with the person that owns it who's quite possibly also the winemaker. So decisions can be made a lot quicker. But I think that the, where I said before, like the value proposition uh, is, is very different in those things. So so no, we, we don't have a flat fee for a label as such mm-hmm. um, across the board. So as an agency, you adopt a, a value-based pricing operation or? It's part of what we do is try and, I mean, again, in that early stage, it'd be like what a success look like. So if we can put that into potentially a dollar figure, it may not be a dollar figure. It might be, it might be you know, there's other things that they're looking at. Mm. But if we can put it into that, so then rather than saying, okay, it's going to take 100 hours to do this, it'll be more like, okay, if we work with you to to reach that that value, then, you know, what is a reasonable investment to make to reach that value? Yeah. Uh, and then that's a conversation we can have. It's an easier conversation we can have with a business owner um, than with a marketing manager that's dealing with a budget and a line of direct reports. <laughs> How do you get buy-in from further up in some of those larger organisations? So obviously you'd be factoring in more revision rounds and stuff mm-hmm. for projects if it's going through multiple stages of approval, but... How are you as a, as a brand engaging with some of those higher-ups along the way? Yeah, quite often we'd, we'd um, particularly in the early instances of the project, we'd probably want to have um, some dialogue with some of those. Now, it may not be the MD, but it might be the marketing director that's involved in some of that early briefing stages or some of the interviews that we may have. But that sometimes it's also working with our direct customer, which might be a brand manager or marketing manager, in making sure that we give them the tools that they can then be explaining upwards of of what we're all trying to achieve. So set review stages and set review stages, yeah. um, and really sort of um, having a fair bit of rigor around um, rationales and why we're doing things, and not because you know 
we think it looks pretty, but because these are the parameters that we set up in the brief and this is what we think we need to do to achieve those um, results and those sorts of things. So it's, um, I mean, all of our process, even if we're working for a small business or a large business, we're always looking at sort of objective um, decisions. So, you know, this is what we're trying to achieve. This is why we've done this because this will help us achieve that rather than being subjective. We're trying to take that subjectivity out of the process now we don't we don't get rid of all the subjectivity mm. but if we can get more objective um you know decisions made along the way then it, it, it makes it a lot easier i feel like we've had one of these conversations before but um you have a very close-knit team and i think you've you've obviously got a team that's been around for mm-hmm. a long time within your organization as well did you start out to have such a very close-knit team and keep it as a smaller agency was that sort of in your vision and how do you go about building your own brand and culture within the team i think size is a an interesting thing i've always thought that so prior to starting parallax i worked at a larger design firm and i used to often find and even still now sometimes you know you'll you'll lose to a, a much larger firm and some of the, the you know the, the commentary around that would be oh they've got more they've got more resources they can throw at my project sort of thing and, and in the actual fact even if you're in a 30 or 50 strong you know design company or agency there's only going to be a core group of people that's working on any project at any one time so i sort of looked at thought you know rather than building a large agency you know a, a small t- you know Six of us, we can we can achieve it a huge amount of work and and give a huge amount of value back to our clients. We don't need to be thirty people to do that. I mean, also the other thing is just market forces. I mean, you know, the sort of work we do, we don't need to be that big um, to be able to do what we want to do. So, I mean, size has never really has never been a motivating factor of I want to have the biggest agency in town. And as far as culture goes, I don't know. I mean, it's I mean, we've got a great team. And absolutely, you know, amazing team and really close-knit. And and they've been with, you know, I mean, Kel's been with me for now for just over 20 years. Uh, Joe's just clicked off 10. Josh is about to click off 10. Um, Amanda, I think, is about 7. Wow, long service leave out your ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I think it sort of shows, and, and again, it's, it, I think we, we're getting more conscious and more deliberate about the things that we do as far as culture these days and that's actually been driven probably more by the team rather than rather than me uh, to make sure that everyone feels sort of you know you know supported and, and appreciated and and also that they can sort of work to their best as well and you know there's there's a whole bunch of things that are, that are happening now and happening into the future that will make that even more so so yeah i um i think the whole culture thing again i suppose i started it wasn't a deliberate thing I just think it was like, okay, I'm going to build uh, an agency that I'd like to work in. Anyway, and I came from an agency that I really loved working in. So I could see the sort of things that was were happening there to make people feel good about sticking around, you know, and, and getting there and putting their best in. Uh, and, and, again, it wasn't something that was dictated. It was just something that, you know, that, that just happened, you know, through good communication, through giving people the space to work, giving responsibilities, um, those sorts of things. You guys have obviously successfully niched into an area where you have multiples of, of the same mm-hmm. type of company coming to you for basically a very similar product. Yep. In Australia, I tend to see that people are always worried about competition yep. and conflict of interest and 
I've noticed in America, people tend to gravitate towards agencies that specialize in areas rather than worry about conflict. Yep. How have you navigated that path here in Australia and how come people are happy to come to you, I guess, if mm. you're working with five or ten of their other competitors? Yeah, yes, it's a, it's a really interesting question. So on that specialization, there's a, a saying that, you know, if you've got two clients in the same industry, there's a conflict. If you've got ten, you're a specialist in that in that area. So it it just doesn't even come up. Okay, so we work for, you know, one big multinational. You know, we do work for Accolade. That probably stops us from working for Treasury. You know, they would see that as a as a conflict. Are these conversations that you have with the client? Or you just presume that or or assume some barriers? There's assumed barriers if we're working for one of their big brands that's a retail brand, then for us to work for the exact opposite, you know, competitor at that point um, is different. And and again, you know, we're talking sort of sort of corporation size, so they've got a whole bunch of other pressures and, and ideas and things like that. But on the on the the smaller the independent or the family owned in particular, and the independents can be quite large as well. We do a lot of work with Yolumbo, who's independent, but they're you know pretty huge. Mm. I just don't think they they don't see it. They, we don't get questioned about it. That they view us as having a level of expertise and experience in that field. They also view us because we see so much wine, then we've got probably a broader understanding of what's happening in the in the broader industry than they might, and and that we come in with a certain perspective of what's working in the market, what sort of trends are happening in the market there's any shifts or changes and things like that. So it, it sort of transcends being a competitive disadvantage. It's more, I think they more see it as that we've actually got a, there's a resource that they can tap into that they may not get from their own internal teams. Do you think that might change as you potentially move into more of this digital space? From a marketing point of view, there's obviously a lot more com- competition when it mm-hmm. comes to, let's say, bidding on the same Google AdWords terms. Yep or competing for the same Facebook advert space or, or similar? Like, do you think that will change as you bring in more services or you think you'll be able to keep that separate? Yeah, I think some of those things may. Uh, I think I think we'd be able to keep them separate. But a lot of the stuff that we're doing with D2C is, um, you know, how do we build up a really good subscription list? How do we build up, you know, uh, eyes on their brand? And then what do we do with that data? So it's... It becomes, yes, obviously we want to get more customers for our clients, but also if they've got a customer base, how do we actually service them better and potentially get them to be buying more or better or more frequently Mm. um, uh, through that? Because, you know, a lot of people will subscribe to one, but they'll subscribe to multiple wine businesses, you know. So, you know, how do do we get them to favour our client's brand over over something else uh, rather than going, okay, we've got to start buying Google AdWords to get more eyes on that brand. Um, I think there's other ways, smarter ways we can get to actually build a connection between a customer and a brand that way. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so we've got the fast five. Yeah. Question number one, do you prefer to work in a team or alone? Mm. Uh, I would say a team. And, and, a, and a team is like working with your client. Um, or, or working with their team, working with our team. One of the things that was interesting about either working remotely and then coming back in the studio was working remotely, you can never have those spontaneous conversations. You, can, you can't just go, hey, what do you think of this? You can't get someone else's opinion. 
you have to schedule a Zoom meeting to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I mean, as soon as we could get back in the studio, we were all back in the studio and, and have worked that way since. I mean, it's, you know, having things remotely have made things more flexible, but I still think, you know, working as a team um, and what the team can actually bring to a project is really important. It was just me back at COVID, so I didn't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't in the creative industry, what would you do? Um, okay, so well, actually growing up, particularly at school, like, I loved physics. And at one point I toyed with studying physics. Now, I don't know where that would have led. Um, but the thing I, that interested me about that was it's a really creative subject. You know, it's unlike chemistry where it's just like sort of observing and measuring, like the theoretical side of physics is a really creative um, uh, route to take. I, I'm, I'm trying to solve problems or simplify things or, <clears throat> I mean, the other thing was that I never looked at anything else apart from like, you know, loving physics at school. I never looked at anything else. I only put, you know, I didn't have a range of things, you know, in case the graphic design thing didn't, didn't, didn't work out. You know, I, that was, I had one um, placement, you know, out of school and that was for graphic design. I didn't have a plan B. <laughs> if I didn't get in there, I don't know what I would have done. No, no guitar playing. You wouldn't be a rock star. Oh, of course I'd be a rock star. <laughs> Maybe you should give your next gig a plug on here. I don't know. <laughs> if you were a type of cheese, what cheese would you be? Oh, my, oh I'd be Yarsberg. I love Yarsberg. It's my favourite cheese. Organised or messy? Organised. I'm Virgo. Yep. Their office is very organised. I can uh, I can account for that. Uh, what's your favourite font? Mm. Uh, I'm going to say I don't have a favourite font. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I look at fonts, honestly, I look at fonts as being like the accent or the tone to the words, all right? So the font you choose should then be imparting that, that personality in the words you're trying to, or the, what you're trying to communicate. So, you know, I, I mean, there'll be, there'll be fonts that I'll gravitate towards, but I can't say I've got a favorite one. And I can't say that I'm even broadly, I prefer a serif over sans serif. I just think it's, you know, the font has to serve the message and, and that becomes the, the, you know, the decision in what font to use. So you use a different font for yelling versus a different font for whispering. Yeah, you could, or you could be. Um, uh, okay, I, I want to be. You know, th this 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 brand has to be. You know, uh, really com contemporary and urbane, and you know, minimalist. And the, the font's going to come through on that. Or this is no, this is a much um, friendlier, warmer sort of personality that the brand we're trying to project. So the the font needs to um, sort of project that as well. And it's something that that will feel like. I think if you're reading the words. People outside my industry don't even really analyse fonts at all. So it's going to be that there'll be, it'll just impart the right feeling or tone that you're trying to get across. Every time I sift through all the, whether it's default or online fonts, some of them are just not legible. And oh, yeah. Does accessibility matter with, with what you're doing with fonts and, and why do fonts like that exist? Do you, do you have any idea? <laughs> Um, well, sort of, I suppose some more experimental sort of stuff. And again, it depends on what the market you're, you're doing or what you're trying to project. But, you know, a headline font, for instance, could be, you know, less legible. I mean, when you get down to body copy, then legibility becomes, you know, a far 
greater consideration than say for a headline font and also readability ease of reading you know is it is it easy to read does it tie your eyes out does it not tie your eyes out is it going to work online was it going to work on the page so there's those sorts of considerations that come into it as well but you know why do they exist i think some of them exist just to impart personality not on brand you know whether it's completely legible or not i think it's 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 got more into or you know, it's what the designer wants to do. Sometimes you, know, you see a lot of work and you can see a lot of the designer in, in that work rather than, mm. you know, perhaps the brand in that work. And the final one, um, what advice would you give to your past self or someone starting out? Um, uh, probably like just surround yourself with good people. Um, you know, find find people that you, that can mentor you, you. so whether that... Um, you know, is a boss or someone in the industry. I mean, you know, get involved in the industry and you can do that through associations like AGDA and AADC. And through that you'll find people that you can ask questions and mentor. Um, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a great boss, I did when I started, he became a fantastic mentor to me. So I think it's just suck up as much as you can out of people that know more than you and then, you know, surround yourself with good people. That's about it. But I have one more question actually, which was... Are you still on the tools? Yeah, you said you're you're a founder. Yeah, I think you you normally I think market yourself as a founder and managing director, don't you? Yep. So what do you what do you do in the agency these days? Has it evolved over the years? And are you still on the tools? You're still designing. Yep. And was that meaningful or uh, I guess a, a stepped approach, or did, did it just fall into doing what you do now? Yep. Um, yeah. So it, it's that's a good, good question because we're actually going through. A bit of a change at the moment where um, you sort of get to the point where you go, listen, I can't be doing everything. And I've also got a team of people around me that are really capable. So, you know, you've got to sort of learn to sort of you know, delegate things out and, 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 and have other people being responsible for different areas of the business. I'm still on the tools um, to, a certain, to a certain extent. Um, uh, there will still be projects and clients that I will look after and, and work with. But I think going forward probably, I mean, more and more my time will be on you know how do we develop parallax into being like the very best business that it can be um so there's a lot of things on business development and networking and 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 those sorts of things looking after the team and then probably more it'll get into directing the creative vision of the business rather than sitting down and and actually you know rolling out artwork and rolling out standards manuals and you know all of that sort of stuff so you know we're actually in a period at the moment where those sorts of things are going to start changing um, as to roles and responsibilities for the team within the business. And uh, yeah, I mean, but I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm a designer, so I, I don't like, I don't want to end up just managing payroll. Um, <laughs> that's not what I did this for, but I do have a really talented team around me that, that, you know, that, um, that to have them sitting there and just rolling out artwork would be a waste, waste of resource and waste of time. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Creative to Creative podcast. Tune in next time for some more inspiring discussions with leading creatives. And check us out on YouTube where you can see shorts and bonus material from previous and upcoming guests. This podcast brought to you by Emotion by Design.